So um, I thought probably the most practical thing to do today, even though it, it, it may be difficult, um, is to uh, do a talk on this study that I've been doing recently and that I referenced at the end of Sunday School actually last week. Um, this book specifically, Forsaking Israel, How It Happened and Why It Matters. So I highly recommend it um, for many reasons that I'll explain as we go through the talk. Um, our, uh, our regular theologian who comes uh, once a year and does a, a conference for us here at the church, Doug Bookman, writes a chapter in this book and, and the appendices. So um, it uh, comes highly recommended. And thanks to uh, Mike, actually, who I'm not sure... Did I see him here today? I don't think he's here today. Um, he's the one that uh, told me about it and pastor. Anyway, but um, we're going to be digging deep into some theological subjects today, and I encourage everybody to speak up. I know that we have some, um, you know, some uh, lay theologians, I guess you would say, like myself here today. So I encourage you to raise your hand and ask questions when we come to complex terms, um, stop me and ask me to define them. Uh, I, I will try and do that, you know, as we go along, but uh, it'll be really helpful, I think, to do that. I know it, it frustrates my wife sometimes when I use terms like eschatology. <laughs> so I don't think that she'd ever heard that term before she started coming to this church. So, but um, what we're going to talk about today, and uh, I didn't put this up because I didn't want to scare you guys off from Sunday school today beforehand, but uh, what we're going to talk about today is a, uh, a controversy in theology. <clears throat> Hold on a second. Get started here. Called supersessionism. And as we discuss it, it shouldn't be a controversy, um, but it is. Um, it sounds like the mic is, is working well right now. Remember how it was cutting out and we had that problem last week? Okay, let me know if that starts happening and I'll switch, I'll switch over to this uh, mic. So supersessionism. As we, as we go along in the discussion, you'll, you'll begin to learn what, what that is. But basically, it's the theological term for replacement theology, which I think many of you may have heard of that and know what that is, uh, but we'll be discussing it. Um, and we'll start off, I guess, with this question because it's current events right now, and we all may have had these personal exchanges within our families at Christmas time about what's happening in Israel right now and the war with Hamas. Um, why is it, do you think, that some Christians who you may have assumed would otherwise support Israel and its effort um, don't. I mean, that, that may be surprising, but the, um, the issue that's happening right now has, has sort of brought uh, this to the forefront of people's minds and belief systems. Um, <clears throat> does anyone have any... Any suspicions or, or ideas about, or comments, you know, about 
maybe being surprised at family members they discovered are really not supportive of Israel? Right, yeah. Yeah, sorry. Um, there's, this, uh, there's this idea that uh, when in, in one of the Gospels, I forget which one, where it says that the people who have condemned Jesus to death in, in the square in front of Pilate, when they, when they asked that Jesus be crucified rather than releasing him, when Pilate offered, um, there's, there's an expression there when, when Pilate says, I wash my hands of the responsibility of this, and the people respond back, let the responsibility of, of this decision be on us and our children. And so we, we see in history that, that there's been negative consequences, obviously, for the Jewish people over and over. Um, but how appropriate is it to be, to be sort of laying blame today, and what does it look like when you do that? So, go ahead. I think there's also a feeling of... Yeah, well, I, I, we all know, what well, maybe not all, but, you know, it, a couple years ago, uh, the country of Israel was very much divided politically, and that was one of the main issues, you know? How much do you love versus hold a hard line? against these terrorist organizations that, you know, want to destroy you. Um, and, they, and they went through something like five or six elections in like two years, and pretty much every election was split right down the middle. You know, it is, it is really amazing, actually, to look at the way that the politics of the country have changed just in the last couple months. The, the uniformity and agreement on what is necessary to do now in, in that nation. I can't imagine there being any issue that we would have that would create that kind of uniformity here in the United States. But again, we have a culture of individualism here, so we probably never would achieve that level of agreement. Remember 9-11? How all in agreement we were that, you know, lasted like a week? (laughs) Yeah, and that's kind of why I asked the question and why I was getting at. Um, Let's go ahead and... Start with the talk here. So basically, supersessionism, you know, that, that word is a, a word that describes what replacement theology, you, you know, is, is also. Two, two words for the same thing. So the, in, in theological thought, the church, the Christian church, has replaced the nation of Israel in the mind of God and in the heart of God as the chosen people, as the elect. And therefore, all of the promises that we see in Scripture apply to the church and not to national Israel as it exists today, or the Jewish people as they exist today. That's this idea of replacement theology, and supersessionism means that the church has superseded Israel in the plan of God. So, let's start out here with a little personal example. So my, my daughter started going to college in Ohio, and she, as is encouraged by the school and required by the school, is, is going to church on Sundays and became a member and went through a membership class. And because I asked, she brought her membership materials home so I could look at them, you know, because I'm curious about those sorts of things, and I think they're, it's important. 
Um, <coughs> and uh, the new member class materials had uh, some brief description of the denominational uh, affiliation and belief, and then also the church constitution statement of faith. So those were my resources to look at. And the description of the denomination was this, and I, of course I graded out because I don't want to be you know, uh, too critical. Um, but it's a theologically conservative denomination, okay, believing strongly in the autonomy of each local church under the headship of Christ. Our member churches include those who are congregational, Christian, evangelical, and reformed in their background, as well as independent community churches, and um, kind of blah, blah, blah. Although we solidly, we're solidly committed to the basic doctrines of the Christian faith, we allow for diversity in many areas <clears throat> where Christians have tended to disagree Though our members hold strong biblical convictions, we do not believe Christians should divide over secondary issues. As an evangelical denomination in obedience to Jesus Christ, we work together to advance the kingdom of our Lord through evangelism, church planning, and missions. So uh, I think many of us in this church come from a background of a church very similar to this. Reformed background, coming out of the Reformation. Lutherans, Presbyterians, um, uh, uh, Baptists, uh, many Baptists, not all, you know, that splits down the Calvinist Arminian line. You know, Baptists can split both ways that way, but the Reformed churches are generally Calvinist to varying degrees. And we'll talk about that a little bit, although today's, this morning's talk, we're not going to get into that, that debate so much. Um, and this idea that there are certain basic doctrines. But we don't want to be really uh, contentious about other things that we don't consider the basics. And, of course, that's the crux of the matter. You know? <laughs> What's an important basic doctrine and what is an unimportant doctrine that we can agree to disagree on and then yet be in fellowship at church together on? Um, and so, you know, I, I attended a church like this in college and med school and for, so for eight years. And I met my wife at a church like this, and, you know, it's so very positive. But this is the kind of church that you could go to for eight years and never once hear a sermon that explains that the church's basic theology is supersessionist. You would not once hear a sermon like that in eight years. And why is that? So you may have heard in the polling that the, the Christians of the world most supportive of national Israel are American Christians. And repeatedly during that polling, the definition of those American Christians who are supportive of national Israel, like in its current conflict and historically, are evangelical Christians. So why is that, and what does it mean to be an evangelical Christian in America? And why is supporting national Israel kind of like a, a very popular belief among evangelicals. And why would many evangelicals maybe going to this church, who probably is supersessionist, and I only say that because they're, they come from a reformed background, why would most of those Christians, when you ask them, not even know that? So we're going to get into that. Yeah, go ahead. And I'm so glad that you asked that, because what's so interesting about supersessionism is it's very closely tied into eschatology, which is end times. 
end times prophecy, end times teaching. These two, these two items are very closely intertwined. And, and you're right. You won't find a lot of end times teaching at all in these churches. All right. So then the section on salvation... We get to the end of this long paragraph, and you'll see here uh, that over on the right, that the true believer is secure in Christ, nothing being able to separate him from God, and that this security is dependent upon God's ability to keep the believer and not the believer's ability to keep himself. So I really like this description of Calvinism because it, it focuses on God's ability here. God's will and ability. And like I said, we're not going to get into that debate, but that, the limits of God's will and sovereignty as compared to our free will, Calvinism and Arminianism, that is a difficult subject with no clearly, in my view, no clearly biblical resolution as to a logically consistent and pure one way or the other. Okay? there is good scriptural evidence to support both views. And we can get into that on another Sunday. We're not going to get into that today because that's hard. What we're going to talk about here is relatively easy, supersessionism. But they're connected, and I'll explain how they're connected. So why, why go into this kind of thing and evaluating my daughter's church? Why, other than just curiosity, what... <laughs> What's the big deal here? Am I, I'm, I'm, I'm very glad that she's going to church. And you know what was really funny is yesterday morning, because of the sudden change, and now I'm doing this, uh, preparing for this talk, she comes over and looks at the screen. She goes, oh, you're going to talk about me. So that's a, that's a free meal or a free gift or something like that. Um, anyway, but I didn't, I'm not mentioning her name, so I don't have to give her a free gift. So... Um, she said, how can you say those things about my church when you haven't even gone there and, and met the people? And I'm like, I, you know, you're right. I haven't. But, you know, this is just one aspect of a church, you know. And I'm so thankful, I praise God, that she's serving the Lord and that going to church is important to her. So I, this is, I'm not being, I hope I'm not being too critical here, but why, why is this kind of thing important? Sorry? It's important to God. What, what about it is important to God? Are you saying a doctrinal statement or are you talking about secessionism? Well, investigating your adult child's church choice based on the doctrinal statement. Yeah. Why, why be that concerned about that? Why not just be happy? She's going to church with Christian people and I'm so happy. That she's doing that. Right, yeah. And I, I guess I would say that um, just like the analogy here of these plants and how they grow, how are you going to determine the, the type of plant that you have as it grows from a seed? You're going to look at its physical characteristics, and that'll then determine what type of plant it is. But that type was always pre-programmed in the genetics of that plant. As that plant was growing, it was always going to turn out that way 
because that's how it was programmed. A church, an individual church or church denominations programming is in its doctrinal beliefs, especially its written doctrinal beliefs. And you may have individuals that believe a certain way in a certain church. But remember to think outside the box of our own existence and generation. Remember your children and your children's children. Beliefs can change. Cultures can change. What is the thing that keeps that church growing according to the programming that it had? It's those written doctrinal statements. Right? If, if it's not written down, it can change. Maybe not in you, but in your kids and your grandkids. And so this is not theoretical. This is happening in our, in our own lives here. Fortunately, not in this church, but Wayne mentioned multiple times you know, in his study about what's happened in the Methodist church. So that's a perfect example. And that's why I think there is value in searching out God's word, finding that way of interpreting the Bible, that systematic theology that is the most consistent biblically, and then believing it, putting it down in writing in your doctrinal statement. It's going to be much longer than the church I just read. And it's going to involve, you know, positive statements and negative statements about secondary things. Things that aren't required to believe for salvation, you know, but that are important. So that's kind of... Here's a, a secondary thing. So at the... Uh, this is my... I, I wrote that in before I knew I was going to do this talk. So the second coming of Christ, we believe in the personal, visible, and future return of Christ to the earth that the world will not be converted during the present time period, but is ripening for judgment until the age of the Gentiles be fulfilled, which will climax in the apostasy of professing Christendom. Now, how many people, knowing that this, the kind of church we're talking about, right? How, how many people going to that church, if you ask them, what is your church's written doctrinal eschatology or end times teaching? According to your church constitution, what does your church believe about the end times? What percentage of the, uh, of the people regularly attending that church would raise their hand and know? I would say 10%, probably. So, so what is it? So, is there any mention of rapture? Is there any mention of the millennium? No. And knowing that it comes from a reformed tradition, I would suggest that it's very likely amillennialism. So, big term, but very important. Amillennialism, meaning no millennium. Okay, so they don't believe that there will be a millennium. And what is the millennium? The millennium is the prophetic prediction that when Jesus returns to the earth in power after, after uh, 
succeeding in the battle of Armageddon, destroying all of God's enemies, all non-believers, will then begin a 1,000-year reign as king over all the nations of the earth in Jerusalem for a 1,000 years, not in spiritual bodies, but in physical, regenerated bodies. Those of us who have died rise again with him, go with him into the battle of Armageddon, are victorious with him, and then live on in our resurrected, glorified bodies through the millennium for 1,000 years. That, that's millennialism. And if you don't believe that any of that will actually happen, amillennialism. Oh, sorry. I'm going to read it. Yeah, it's my bad writing. Yeah, does anyone know what they're talking about with that? Because I am confused too, and I would like to know. Right. I think what they're getting at, again, because they're Calvinists and they believe in the absolute security you know, of their salvation, I think what they're getting at is that the professing Christendom, the apostasy of professing Christendom, in other words, that there will be many, many Christians, the majority of them living at, at that time, at the end, uh, that, will, that will reject Jesus because they never were saved. They're just professing Christians. I don't <laughs> That, that's true, yeah. I, I mean, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it, it really, it confuses me too. I, there are, and I didn't have time to, you know, dig in and, and look at that any deeper, except that in general, amillennialists are either in the camp that they think that because of the advancement of human technology and just uh, with better education and better, you know, food uh, accessibility and all these things, you know, that, that all of human society will continue to get better and better and better and better, more civilized, more loving to each other, all this stuff until finally the end of time and Jesus comes. Okay, that, that's one way a, a millennialist will think of it. And then the other way is that things will continue to get worse and worse and worse and worse until the whole world goes through a tribulation-like time at the end, not necessarily the seven-year you know, tribulation, uh, and then finally King Jesus comes back. And I think that if, if that's what, you know, I'm thinking that they mean they're in that amillennial camp where they think things are going to continue to get worse, even to the point where there'll be many professing Christians who will reject Jesus at the end, but not true Christians. Okay, so if, if you are a millennial in your doctrine, then you are supersessionists. They, the two go together. And that's that connection that, that you know, was made earlier. Eschatology and, and supersessionism uh, are, are interrelated. Eschatology meaning end times uh, events, teaching. All right. So this is the book that I recommend that, uh, and I'm going to kind of do a little, uh, it's not really a book review, it's sort of a real basic outline 
um, as we go along, I'm going to tell you uh, kind of like what each chapter discusses. And the, the beginning of the book, the first five chapters, talks about church history le- leading to the systematic theology called covenant theology or covenantalism. And this is the systematic theology developed by the generation following the Reformation. So Calvin and Luther being the, the, the main reformers of the, the Reformation, 1500s, and then the generation, the, the academic experts following them, writing down and sort of uh, uh, logically and reasonably uh, organizing this new theology of the Reformation. And it, was, it came to be known as covenant theology. This is the basis for the Reformation churches, the Reformed churches. So most Christian churches in the United States have a Reformed theology or covenant theology. <clears throat> so the book discusses the history, and it's very, very interesting. Um, the original Reformed Christians who did not go along with the plan of the next generation, uh, the Reformed theology, were the Anabaptists. The Anabaptists became the Amish and the Mennonites. Um, those are the, the descendants of the Anabaptists that still exist with us today. And from the very beginning, there were many aspects of covenant theology that, that they did not agree with. Um, and uh, this came to a head in that following generation when many pastors in uh, Reformed churches also were uncomfortable with some of the extreme aspects of Calvinism. And there was a council, uh, a heated council in, in, in Holland in the late 1500s where this was hashed out, uh, where the extreme five points of Calvinism were explained. Uh, we, we can get into this later if we have time. And the, the opposing viewpoint was called Arminias, Arminianism, after a theologian uh, pastor in Holland who has the name Arminius. And this is where the name Arminianism comes from. And uh, basically, you can think of Arminianism as emphasizing free will of the believer. And you can, uh, and you can um, it maybe in one word, summarize Calvinism as, as the predestination or will of God as being uh, preeminent. And so this term evangelical, let's focus on that because it's so important to, to, uh, to our supersessionism uh, topic. So I, I'm, I'm logically organizing Christians today this way uh, in the United States. So we have the broad Christian who can be cultural Christian, right? You, you go to someone on the street and you say, you know, are you a Christian? And they're just kind of like, ah, you know, what do you mean by that? I, you know, and it's just like, well, are you Muslim? No, I'm not Muslim. Okay. Are you an atheist? No, I'm not an atheist. Okay, well, I, I guess I'm a Christian then. Okay, that would be that kind of Christian, right? So very broad, cultural, uh, historical. Um, and then Protestant, as opposed to Catholic, would be a, uh, the next biggest divide. And then within Protestants, we have these evangelicals. So not all Protestants would be considered evangelicals. And I'll explain why in, in a bit. 
And then within evangelicals now, you have this further divide based on systematic theology. So we have covenantalism, which I just explained, and is the basis for our Reformed churches. And that covenantalism includes the theological uh, uh, term supersessionism and also includes Calvinism. They, they go together within covenantalism. And then you have a separate, uh, you have a separate systematic theology called dispensational premillennialism. So, break that down. Premillennialism. It means you believe in the millennium, that it will happen, and it means that you believe that it's in the future. So we are pre-millennialist now. Okay? And then dispensational, don't get, don't get uh, confused by that term. It's just a word that is a label for a certain systematic theology, which I'll explain. And that systematic theology, dispensationalism, is not covenant theology. So, all right. And by the way, that, that word, covenant theology, it, it, don't get confused that it's important that the word covenant is there. You know, you, what, if you don't believe covenant theology, then you don't believe in covenants. No, no, it, it's just a word that got applied to that systematic theology. Everybody believes in the covenants, you know, of the Bible. All right. So now let's, let's keep going and talk about the essence of evangelicalism. And this is from the book that I mentioned on page 211, uh, a definition of what it means in, in Christianity today to be an evangelical. It means, one, the authority of Scripture. So, and by that, basically evangelicals believe that the Scripture is inspired by God and that it's authoritative. Um, and that would... That, that first item is the separation now from Catholicism. Most Catholics would not describe themselves as evangelical. And there are other divisions, but this is an important one. In Catholicism, the church is, uh, is the final authority over and above the word. So in other words, new revelation from God can come from the Pope in a special, formal declaration. And that has the same authority, actually higher, than the Word of God as it exists now. So that's quite different. Um, So evangelicals, the authority of Scripture, preeminent. Number two, the uniqueness of redemption through the death of Christ upon the cross. So... Redemption, being saved from our sins. And, and, and because of that forgiveness and salvation, um, living forever with God after our death. So this, this, uh, 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 this uh, gift is, is unique and only through Jesus. Evangelicals would believe that. So that would be opposed to like a Unitarian type of belief system where if you're a good Muslim and you follow all the precepts of the Quran and you do your best, you know, you, you ultimately, you know, that gets you to God at the end. So evangelicals would not believe that that's a, uh, a legitimate way to, to uh, please God. Um, and then the need for personal conversion. 
So the idea that you need to be born again is, uh, is an evangelical concept. So you're not born into a religious redemptive system, but you, it has to be a personal choice um, and a personal change uh, after repentance. And then the necessity, propriety, and urgency of evangelism, which logically flows from the first points. So if personal conversion is necessary through repentance, then each person must repent. And they need to be told about the opportunity that Jesus has afforded us through his death on the cross and only through his death. All right, so these, these are the, the basics of what it means to be an evangelical. So then now I'm going to go back and I'm going to ask if most evangelical Christians in the United States today go to Reformed churches, why is it then that in polling of evangelical Christians in the United States, there is overwhelming support for national Israel? Why would that be the case if their systematic theology actually teaches that national Israel is no longer important to God and not significant? Exactly, yeah. That's definitely one reason, is that supersessionism is not taught from the pulpit. So that, but, but that's, just, that's just an absence of something. In, in this case, the polling shows a positive presence of something, a support that's there. Nailed it. She said that evangelical Christians, because the authority of Scripture is key to what makes them evangelicals, they read their Bibles. They believe what their Bibles say. And despite what their historical church teaching might be on supersessionism, when they read their Bible, they actually see something different from the heart and mind of God coming out of Scripture. And down deep inside, they realize that there's something there. Yeah. And I think that that's the reason why it doesn't get taught. Because I think the pastors who are up there, many of them believing Christians, obviously, uh, all, if not most, you know, they believe it too. And it's, 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 it doesn't sound right when it comes out. It doesn't sound right. So in chapter 6 of the book, um, it assesses covenant systematic theology and supersessionism in, in, in a, a very readable way. I mean, this, this book is by the theology seminary staff at, at Shepherd's Theological Seminary, and that's where Doug Bookman is a professor now. Um, and, but it's, it's written so accessibly to non-theologians. It really is. Um, and then um, chapter 7 through 9 then present I say a more biblical alternative, which is dispensational premillennialism. And when I say more biblical, um, you know, I mean, it, it is what it is, right? When you're a supersessionist, there's unfortunately a lot of the Bible that you've got to explain away. 
And how do you explain away? It's what I wrote here, and I forgot to read to you <laughs> my scribble. I say here, amillennialism is not biblical. Too much of scripture must be explained away as allegorical. And when you start explaining away scripture as simply allegory, then all of a sudden that opens the doors to many errors. And that goes to the programming and the DNA of a church. If, if you believe a certain way and then you read scripture that seems to not agree with that and that you allegorize that scripture as not being applicable for whatever reason, now you, go, you start to go down this very dangerous path of not really believing everything in scripture teaches. You're really believing what you want to believe in scripture and finding ways not to believe what you don't want to believe in scripture. And when you start doing that, right, the famous saying is you don't believe scripture anymore, you're just believing yourself. I saw a hand. Somebody at? Oh, I'm sorry, thank you. Um, so an allegory is like a story or like a parable that you're not to be ta- it's not to be taken literally. It's like metaphors and similes, you know, in the English language. We have these expressions. They're not to be taken literally, but they just present a meaning. Yes, absolutely. Not, not all of Scripture, right, is literal, and there definitely is appropriate allegorical use, especially in the poetry and in prophecy. Right, right. But as, when you read through the chapter, though, you'll see um, very specific examples in Scripture. Sorry. Very specific examples in Scripture um, that uh, are so specific and so straightforward that to accept them allegorically is really dishonest. Um, um, when it comes to prophecies about the nations of Israel's, to us, partly past, and, but mostly future. So, and of course, supersessionists believe that, allegorically speaking, all of those promises are really talking about the Christian church, our present and future, and not about Israel. Yeah, and you know, a large portion of our Bible is Old Testament prophecy, and a large portion of Old Testament prophecy are future of national Israel and the Jewish people. Um, Where are we for time? Okay, great. Chapter 10 is a fascinating chapter. There was a theological conference, the first of its kind, that was formed in 1878. Pastors from a wide range of Christian denominations in the United States came to this conference. The the purpose of the conference was to discuss the theology of supersessionism, and the people who called this conference and the people who went to it were mostly anti-supersessionists. And they came from Presbyterians, Baptist, Methodist, Episcopalian, a whole number of different Lutheran, whole different kinds of denominations. These were pastors who were convinced that supersessionism was wrong. And they came to this conference. And what's so interesting about it is most of this chapter 10 is just a word-for-word lecture by one of the leaders of this conference. And in this lecture, he lays out 
in a very detailed fashion from Old Testament prophecy what will happen in the future of Israel. Based on Old Testament prophecy, one of the things he predicted was that there will be two waves of return of the Jewish people to the nation of Israel. And the first gathering and the second or final gathering. And these are some of the details that he laid out, not by any revelation from God, any special revelation. No, it's all there in the Old Testament prophecy and, and a little bit in the New Testament. Okay, so from Zechariah and Matthew, which, which speak to the first gathering. By the way, what was the first gathering? When did that happen? The first gathering of national Israel? Exactly, 1948. And when did he predict this? 1878. Okay? So this seemed like bizarre, wacko, no way ever that could happen at the time. It, I'm telling you, academic people at this time, that took real faith and trust in the Word of God to come out publicly and say these kinds of things. Okay? But this is the details that he, that he predicted for the first gathering. There would be large numbers who returned, but it would not be a complete return. They would be unsaved. The Jewish people who returned would be unsaved, meaning they would not accept Jesus as their Messiah. They would eventually rebuild the temple and reinstitute the temple service. Has that happened yet? No, but it will according to Old Testament prophecy. And what was the purpose of this first gathering? The purpose of the first gathering, dispensationists believe, is for God to put his people, unfortunately, through suffering, to bring them to repentance. And we can all use our own personal stories of salvation to relate to that. Sometimes, in I would say most people, you have to get to the end of your rope before you actually repent. And dispensationists believe that God's purpose in the tribulation, and even what the Jewish people are going through right now, has an ultimate purpose of bringing the Jewish people to the end of their rope. Because, unfortunately, that seems to be necessary before they, as a nation, repent and accept Jesus as their Messiah. But it will be so much worse in the tribulation than it is now. And then it will be re- because of that suffering that will happen, both now and especially in the, at the end of the tribulation, the numbers of Jewish people living there in, the, in their nation of Israel will be reduced to a remnant. Um, and then the second and final gathering, these are multiple Old Testament prophecies. Uh, the second and final gathering, it starts immediately following King Jesus, Yeshua's victory in the Battle of Armageddon. It's a complete and universal return. This is immediately following Jesus' victory on earth in the Battle of Armageddon. That it's, uh, the prophecies say that it will be accomplished naturally by survivors of that battle and also supernaturally by God himself. That during that process of the regathering, that most of the Jewish people are still unsaved at that point. But immediately upon return to the nation, they repent and believe in Jesus as their Messiah. 
The land then is transformed and extends from the Nile to the Euphrates, a much larger geographic area than the current national Israel uh, borders. And the spiritual blessings of the millennial Israel will be similar to ours now, the spiritual blessings, uh, in, in the sense that their sins will be forgiven because of what Jesus did for them on the cross. But great and exalted will be the millennial Israel's position during that millennial kingdom. Um, the Isaiah chapter that pastor's going to preach about today is t- a testimony to that great and exalted status of Israel in the millennial kingdom. Um, I'd like all of you to, because we don't have time now, all of you to read sometime this week Romans chapter 11 again with the understanding of what we've just been talking about and see the heart and mind of Paul as he explains this. And also at the same time, think about as you read that, what it, what it takes for someone who is a supersessionist, right? What it takes for them to do with scripture to not believe what Paul's saying. I mean, you, you have to go out of your way to twist Paul's words around and, and not believe them for what they clearly and plainly teach. To believe in supersessionism, which is why this is an easy one, folks. So supersessionism is not biblical. And praise God that, um, you know, our church has is, is, is never been, you know, uh, deceived by, by this teaching. And, and many churches are not. So, yeah. But unfortunately, a minority still. Dispensationalism, premillennialism is definitely a, a minority position theologically in our country today. So, does anyone have any final questions? Yes, someone in the back? Oh, right back here, yes. Yeah, yeah, well, I, that's a very good description, unfortunately, and true for many of us in our own personal walk. It says at the end of Romans 11, it says, as regards the gospel, they are enemies of God for your sake. And truly, the, the Jewish people today, the vast majority, 99% in Israel today, they are enemies of the gospel. And you will have only to meet a Messianic Jew who lives in Israel today, and they will tell you how every day that is palpable and, and a reality for them, truly persecuted. Um, But Paul goes on and says, but as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. And that is why we support national Israel, even though 99% of national Israel do not believe in Jesus as their Messiah, because they are elected and beloved by God, and we love those whom God loves. So with that, we'll end. (laughs) 